everyone, and welcome to another episode of Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Tiffany Friends. And today we're going to be talking about science and the media, and how the media portrays popular science. Uh, recently, there was a... was it today or yesterday? It's happened this week, like... Yeah, there's been um, reports of a scientist using CRISPR to edit genes in the germline, which is a big deal because once you edit genes in the germline, then that means those gene edits can get passed down to the next generation. I'm not sure what to make of this because this is not my area of expertise, but Sophia, can you tell us what to make of this? Look, it's been a good-ass week for my PhD knowledge actually getting play in the media because we've had Mm. um, this CRISPR outcome, but we've also had, like, news that turns out mitochondrial DNA is passed down paternally. that's right. Like, more often than we previously suspected. Um, And, I mean, look, we'll get onto that. I'm also mad about how that's been reported. (laughs) But um, with the CRISPR thing, essentially there is a scientist who is claiming, and it's now thought that it's quite likely that what he claims is true, um, that he genetically engineered um, twins to result in changes to a particular gene that should give them resistance to HIV. So they recruited, I think, something like 30 couples where the father was HIV positive and the mother was HIV negative. So these couples generally go through um, IVF in order Mm -hmm. to minimize the risk of HIV transmission to the mother and to the kids. Um, And so they were were couples that were going to go through IVF anyway. Um, And so this just extra step was added on. The problems are many. Um, From a scientific perspective, like, the major issue is that the mutations that have been sort of published and released for the two kids who are being called Lulu and Nana, but those aren't their actual names, um, Mm -hmm. they've been entirely anonymized. And this is one of the issues that many scientists are having, like, because, like, while we sort of go, like, yeah, obviously these families should be anonymized, if we have no way to track their progress, we don't know if Mm. these kids are going to, like die real fast um and the mutations that we're seeing in these two kids genomes like they're not they haven't been previously observed in the world and so we don't know what they're going to do we don't know what this means right and so that's not that's not great um so we don't know if the change was actually bad change we don't know if the change results in hiv resistance and we don't know if the kids are actually okay so that's all not wonderful Mm-hmm. You then get on to the fact that, like, so the lead scientist um, is he, he Jankui, and I apologize if I pronounce that badly. <laughs> and, like, I, China was the first place that did CRISPR gene editing on um, non-viable embryos. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge outrage and pushback from the West about this, and I've always been incredibly defensive of this, because essentially the paper that was published ticked every box that a Western study would have had to tick to be published in Science and Nature. And their reason for rejecting it was it didn't meet their ethical standards. And, like, fam, American studies, like, sew mice together to see if, like, young blood refreshes old mice. Like, I don't necessarily think that, like, Mm. I don't necessarily see that, like, gene editing on known non-viable embryos. So, um, 
these embryos where two sperm have fertilized an egg mm-hmm. um, and they were being discarded from IVF. And so this happened back in 2015. And, you know, like I have always very publicly, like I've written on this, like taken the stance that like it was fine. And mm. the West were just being like kind of racist and kind of xenophobic about China. Mm. And then this fucking happens. And it's just like, I can't, <laughs> there is no way I can defend this. Like, come yeah. on, guys. To a large extent, the West is shitty about Chinese science a lot of the time. And this is just this idea that, like, you know, ethics isn't as stringent. They kind of do whatever they want. There are so many instances where this has happened in the US. And, like, there was one a couple of years ago where, so, um, in a similar way of, like, editing whole babies. There is really no better way to say that. (laughs) And um, Mm -hmm. changing the genetic makeup of an entire human child that results, uh, mitochondrial transfer was something that happened for the first time a few years ago. It didn't happen because of, like, you know, the good ethical oversight that was happening in the UK, where there was, like, a lab full of people who were experts on it, where they'd done, like, um, a lot of experiments on monkeys to ensure that it was, like, safe and viable. It was done by a guy in the US who refused to publish his entire work, who took families to Mexico to do the IVF because the ethics in the States wouldn't allow him. And he sort of said, like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Like, I would do this again. It's so important to do this kind of stuff. Mm. For most instances where, like, mitochondrial transfer is an option, right? Like, the reason it is offered as an option is because it is more efficient than, you know, embryo selection. So you have a lot of mitochondria in every single one of your cells. Some of them have bad genes on them. Some of them don't. In the instance of mitochondrial disease, the amount of ones with bad genes on them outnumbers the ones that don't. And it's generally like 90%. That means that like someone who's perfectly healthy can donate mitochondria to a kid that is not healthy, who has mitochondrial disease. And that's just simply because, like, all of our cells in our body have different kind of mixes of mitochondria. It just, it just happens. Everyone's a chimera, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds really flippant, but it, yeah, it's true. My PhD is in mitochondria. Um, <laughs> and so, like, in that context, when, like, really recently in scientific memory that this guy has just been, like, a fucking cowboy, pissed off to Mexico probably not given the parents like sufficient information about their alternatives for them to meaningfully consent to this procedure like potentially result in a really high number of miscarriages associated with this procedure no experience in it previously like that happened something like two fucking years ago and now this guy he Jankui, is like yeah sure just crisp breeded a babies it's just like man in a scientific context of like baby genome editing right like Mm. baby genetic manipulation it's not fucking great right and then i have a lot to say about this i'm sorry i'm just like no that's good right um that's so good i'm learning so much because i i really didn't know what to think of it like i didn't know if it was real if someone was just yeah i had no idea yeah so he Jankui spoke at a couple of events over the last few days. So, like, this was announced earlier this week. Sorry if you're listening to this. We're in the past. So <laughs> you might know more about this than us by now. It might have all been said, like, turns out lying. And there have been examples about people just, like, telling straight up fibs about, like, cloning humans previously. Yeah. Um, and, like, that's been happening since, you know, 2000 beforehand. 
probably pretty much since Dolly was cloned, right? Like, Mm. we're humans, we lie. The general consensus of people who have attended the events that haven't spoken at, and that's really all I can go off because there's no published papers yet. This is the stuff that makes me really suspicious, right? Is Mm. when you create a media kind of furor Mm -hmm. without really having published something entirely. You get this a lot with the the Clay Institute millennium problems in mathematics. Get a lot of people making a lot of media hoopla about how they've solved the Riemann hypothesis. Yeah. And... Then it turns out, and then they like host a symposium, and then everyone leaves it being like, "Oh, well, that was a crock of bullshit." <laughs> so, um, there are a lot of lot of images and a lot of information about this available online. Um, Gaten Bergio has done some very good Twitter threads about it, um, mm-hmm. and that's taken slides from presentations that have occurred, which makes them look very scientific and like fully considered, but doesn't come with the rigor of peer review. And arguably the rigor of peer review is trying to tear this shit apart because it shouldn't have fucking happened. Yeah. Um, which, like, to an extent I understand that, but I think it is exacerbated by the fact that this is a team in China. And, like, I think mm. that's something we need to be really careful about is, like, it's really easy to go, like, oh, fucking China, have no ethics. Fundamentally, mm. like, that colours our view of this. Mm-hmm. Having said all of that, I still think it's real bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, I would be pissy if a Western university did this. And, like, yeah, arguably they could in the US. Just Yeah, so the big issues is the testing for... So CRISPR is a little bit of DNA scissors that is not as exact as everyone who uses CRISPR would like you to think it is. Mm-hmm. It's not as exact and it's not as efficient. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of problems with CRISPR, uh, many of which I've personally experienced. But basically the big one is, like, while you can screen for off-target effects, which this team ostensibly did, and they mm-hmm. did whole genome sequencing, that doesn't pick up on, like, really broad-scale rearrangements. So, like, your genes right. are kind of meant, meant to be in a particular order, and when that fucks up, sometimes cancer happens, is basically mm-hmm. the short story of that. Sometimes really other bad things happen, but, like, a lot of the really clear examples we have are, like, oh, there's this rearrangement that's really highly associated with cancer. There's one called the Philadelphia translocation. Um... And yeah, so like there's there's damage associated with the potential for large scale rearrangements, which weren't tested for by by any account so far. So I really want to be careful with my language here, because like, you know what? This might be published and the ethics might be perfect and they might have done everything good. My concern is that in all of the presentations that have happened so far, is that they've been the answers to the questions surrounding informed consent of the parents have been, by all accounts, been very vague and mm-hmm. really not specific, and they don't make people feel good about the abil- like the fact that these parents provided informed consent. And secondly, like the fact that there isn't any clear future care or follow-up plans for these kids. And like there is no requirement for anyone outside this research team and any medical treating teams of these kids to know their identities or to know even the fact that they were like genome edited to be born basically. Right. Like Hmm. the kid's doctor doesn't need to know that, but there needs to be an ongoing plan, a treatment team, like fucking just 
scans for cancer, like, you know, age five, yes. just get on that. Like, have an ongoing oversight of the fact that, like, making sure that you haven't done something that's resulted in genomic instability. It seems really important to the the validity of the research as well. Like, if if you don't have data about what happens afterwards, then... Yeah, so it's it's a balance between, like, the privacy of, you know, the families involved and the individuals involved and mm. doing your medical due diligence, right? Like, I think to a large extent, like, you have a limited ability to have ongoing publications and follow-ups of these kids because to do so could impact their privacy and their ability to essentially, like, live their own lives, like, self-actualize, right? Like, if they're constantly being poked, prodded, and tested, like, that's not really a good way to grow up as a child, right? Like, (laughs) so to a large extent, like, I respect the fact that these people aren't going to be doing, like, one-year publications. But equally, like, you need to be able to say with confidence what you're doing and why you are or are not doing it. Like, if you're not going to be following these kids up for cancer, you need to explain why you are that confident that you haven't caused genome instability and large-scale rearrangements. Like, particularly when you're doing something that's groundbreaking. Like, Mm. yeah, it's like what you said about the Millennium Problems. When you do something groundbreaking, there is a higher burden of evidence. And whether that's fair or not is, like, a totally different question. But, like... This has the double-pronged instance where it's groundbreaking and it is fundamentally changing humanity, right? Like, yeah. you said germline and, like, I sort of, you know, went back and went, like, it's the whole fucking baby. But that includes the germline, right? Like, these two young girls, um, every other child that is born from this study, because they recruited a number of couples, they are going to pass on these changes to their children. And that's the really freaky thing. Yes. It's, mm, yeah, so, like, again, there are two things that bother me about it, right? Like, firstly, that these kids did not have the ability to consent to this. No. Like, and that's my issue with germline editing. Like, I'm fine with people at, like, you know, the with trans kids when they're, like, 8 or 10, just being like, you know what, I want hormone therapy, I want this. Because they have chosen that and made that decision, mm. like, to go on puberty blockers, to do whatever they want. That is great, when you decide for your child that something is happening like fundamentally to their body, to their genome, to their kids, to their ability to live their lives, like that's not good. That's like that's why the medical community is sort of starting to pull back on like um enforced surgery for intersex kids. Mm-hmm. And like that comes off the basis that like there's evidence that that's really fucking bad for their physical and mental health. It's also a recognition that like Children are little people, and because of that, they have some human rights. Yeah. (sighs) Deep breath. (laughs) Sorry I'm not... (laughs) No, it's okay. Sorry I'm not asking (sighs) many things. It's all right. Just, like, interrupt me whenever. Mm. I feel like I have so many questions, but I I don't know how to put them all into words. I think the consent thing really bothers me, because it's both about, like, consent of the family involved... And this mm. similarly is the issue we saw with like the mitochondrial transfer therapy um, by the researcher in the States. I think it is difficult to judge informed consent, mm-hmm. particularly like of the people who are going to be parents, particularly if they've had kids die from diseases, and particularly if they don't come from a scientific background. Like, broadly, I'm of the belief that no one can provide informed consent to whole genome sequencing. Mm hmm. 
And that's because to provide informed consent, you need to understand the possible outcomes of what you're consenting to, right? Mm. And, like, scientists don't fucking know what the potential outcomes of you getting whole genome sequencing are. And I think it's very difficult, like, even for, like, me as a geneticist to sit Mm. down and be like, I understand all the possible outcomes of getting my genome sequenced. From my perspective, like, I understand a possible outcome and I don't want it, so I don't get my whole genome sequenced, right? Like, I, Mm. there are particular genetic variants that predispose people to depression, and I just don't Mm. want to know if I have it. Mm. And so I'm never going to get my genome sequenced. (laughs) Like, that is a choice I've made. Like, and that's, I think, is a very, it's very easy to understand when you want to withdraw consent, but I think it is very difficult in the context of genomics and, like, and genomics particularly. So genetics is like when you're sequencing one gene and genomics is when you're like looking at the whole genome. There is so right. many potential outcomes from that, some of which like we haven't even discovered because a lot of the time when you get your genome sequenced, you get updates on like, you know, oh, this thing has just been discovered in research. Oh, this thing has mm. just been turned out. Mm. And I think there's also like, it is near impossible in my opinion to understand the full like, the entirety of the gene environment and gene-gene interactions that you may have experienced throughout your life. Mm. Yeah, it's such a huge search space, yeah. Yeah, well, like, I say that being, like, you know, like, my expertise rests in, like, a limited number of genes, and even then I'm like, I don't fucking know how these interact with the environment. Like, Mm. probably not well, they're all disease genes, like, (laughs) oh. (laughs) Well, that's the thing that that really baffles me about tech, uh, about biology and why I think biology is so amazing is because the just the utter like search space of all of the different combinations of things that could happen is so mind-blowingly huge that like I I am amazed that we even can make sense of a fraction of it and I'm amazed that like that in popular culture um, the assumption is that we know a lot about medicine and we know a lot about biology, whereas the the reality is that we we know so, so very little and yeah. we're guessing most of the time. I think part of the assumption that we know a lot about medicine and biology is like a lot of power is being passed on to the individual in these instances. And so the right. individual is like upping their understanding of medicine and biology. Like whether you look at things like patient rights or the fact that like mm. personal genomics exists, those are two things where a huge amount of power has been passed away from doctors or away from the ivory tower of academia into the hands mm. of an individual. And that means the individual is, you know, when they engage in these, they have to lift their game. <laughs> mm. But it means that that assumption of the knowledge that, you know, academics and professors have is similarly Mm. raised and i don't think that's accurate yeah is that douglas adams line which is like the universe is very big so most people move to a smaller (laughs) place of their own choosing (laughs) i think that's often the way that geneticists approach their research so whether you're like me and you focus on a couple of genes that you're like these guys are my favorites i understand some of their friends but Mm. the rest of it who fucking knows oh you're a you know, mucosal receptor gene. Have fun with that, I guess. Yeah, well, I guess this is the this is the thing that frustrates me similarly with things like machine learning. And what frustrates me is that the public persp- uh, perception and the general perception of um, 
what it can do and how powerful it is and how much control we have and understanding we have over it is complete is a complete 180 to the reality and I, I come across this frustration a lot uh, with machine learning and tech because marketers um, people with startup businesses they're throwing around machine learning as a solution to every single problem ever whereas like experts will know that no one actually knows what goes on inside a machine learning algorithm like we've gone we've talked about this in previous episodes and similarly when you change when you edit a gene to be something else no one knows what's going to happen and i think in general the public has an idea that scientists have an idea of what will happen yeah i mean we can we can predict things certainly yeah it's generally pretty easy if something's going to be real bad to look at it and be like oh no that's going to be real bad yeah um it's that midline yeah where it's really difficult to predict what it means it's high uncertainty yeah so this is why so a lot of genomics is um surrounding disease gene discovery um Mm. in that like there's a family who has sick kids and no one knows why and like i am often referring to children because um as i think we've mentioned in a previous episode my phd was through the department of pediatrics so that's what i know about (laughs) uh and you know a family will have sick kids and you'll generally get like the parents to provide samples to have their genomes or their exomes which is a coding part of the genome sequenced you get something from the kid if they have a healthy sibling you'll generally try and get that as well mm. and often the next step is to say okay what aren't we looking at and that's generally there's like a list of mutations which like you know the scientific community i use air quotes there i mean like nature <laughs> right like the journal nature has said um Mm. there's like a list of genes that you should notify someone if you find a mutation in it and those are genes that have a very high relationship to you know quite damaging diseases so things like the BRCA1 gene if there are deleterious mutations in it you have to tell the family because there's a really high likelihood that people within that family will develop breast or ovarian cancer if there's BRCA1 mutations right so Usually the way that scientists deal with that is we just don't look at that gene. Mm-hmm. We're like, don't want to deal with that ethical uh, minefield. Just not going not gonna to look at it. Just going to take it out, not align it. It's fine. And then often we'll have a like list of genes that we're particularly interested in. We can take out all the um, HLA genes. So there are a couple of genes in humans that are very, very variable. Um, the genes we use to make antibodies are some of those, um, which is why when there's plagues, not all of us die. That's pretty mm. good. Very annoying in genomics. So <laughs> we we ignore all of those. <laughs> um, and then, so in mitochondrial disease, there's a list of about 200 genes that are associated with mitochondrial disease and often we'll only look at those. Um, if you're just kind of having a broad kind of look for a disease gene, you'll get a number of differences to the standard code you have. And so, like, standards are often either you as a group or you as an institution will have samples from healthy people, which are, you know, age matched, race matched, as closely background matched as you can, Mm -hmm. or you will compare to a healthy sibling. And that's also really good and powerful. Mm. And then you'll sort of go through and be like, okay, where does this differ? And if it differs, you then go, all right, how bad is this likely to be? So if the genome sequence differs, that might not change proteins. 
might do shit all. And there are generally some stuff you can exclude at this point where you're like, doesn't change the protein, who gives a shit? And then you go to the stage where you have some bits that do change the protein, and then generally what we do, and this is the point of this very long story, is we'll look at the how well that gene is conserved across other species. Okay. So if that particular part of that particular gene is exactly the same in, like, mice and frogs and lampreys, then it's likely that it's important. Mm -hmm. And if you get something different there, then that's real bad. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So it was a really long story to get to that point, which is, like, that's kind of how we predict things. We use the fact that, like for the same gene of mice and like often you know my work has same genes in mice because mice are mitochondria mm-hmm. mitochondria um <laughs> love it it's so good and so like you know if it's the same in mice and frogs and lampreys like probably a pretty important part of a protein so mm. if it changes it's probably kind of bad and then we see by how much it changed. So your proteins are made out of things called amino acids. And some are real little and jiggly and like act like little hinges on the protein. And some are mm-hmm. chunky boys that have sulfur in them. And if like, you know, a chunky boy with sulfur in it turns into a little hinge, that's probably pretty bad. Whereas like if one that's facing one way turns into one that's facing the other, it's like, eh, who cares? It's a protein. It does its thing. This is incredible to me, by the way. <laughs> like I know I've mentioned this before. <laughs> But it is incredible to me that oh, just the, the functioning of like molecule level proteins and I can't believe we're all alive, basically. is. Oh, God. I mean, look, like all life is kind of held together by duct tape and string. Yeah. But also, but also we can do things like look at proteins with electron microscope, which is just so fucking wild. It's just wild. And as well, like, how resilient life is as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's really surprisingly unkillable. <laughs> surprisingly. Like, even though we've got, like, like, I'm just imagining, like, a huge machine with tiny, tiny intricate cogs and levers and, like, little Rube Goldberg machines everywhere, but, like, all in one machine and everything has to work for something to work, but also surprisingly indestructible. Like, yeah. it just blows What's well, like, um, if you laid out your genome sequence, like, your DNA, in, like, in its current size, if you stretched all of your DNA out, it would be two metres long. Yeah. You've got that in every single one of your cells. And that half of that in, like, your egg cells or your um, sperm cells. But what the fuck? Just, just well. Have you seen that YouTube video where a guy, um dissolves all the other stuff in some organic matter and is just left with DNA. I mean, I've done that. Oh, well. You don't need to see the video. <laughs> you can like you can do it with stuff in your kitchen, I think. Um it's yeah. pretty easy to get DNA, particularly out of like kiwi fruit. Mm. I think that's what they used. Yeah. No, it's um it's a really common experiment for like um high schoolers to do. It looks gross. <laughs> well, the thing is, right, like if you can see the DNA, it's not very pure. Mm, so when right. it's like white and like goopy mm. that is like it's still got lots of proteins on it and it might have some fats on it as well mm-hmm. the trick with DNA is you want to have basically like a clear blob at oh, the wow. bottom of your little test tube which is super annoying when you're trying to dry it out and you need to get mm-hmm. all the liquid off but you don't want to suck the DNA up and it's you've got really pure DNA because you're quite good at experiments by now and it's all clear mm-hmm. and you just fuck it up and lose your DNA 
Like, yeah. that's really annoying. But yeah, like, so the best <laughs> DNA is stuff you can't really see. Yeah, so, like, a lot of our predictive things are based on the fact that, like, we know a bit about disease genes. And mm-hmm. so, like, if it matches a previously known disease gene or it's really similar to it, we can be like, mm, seems bad. Mm-hmm. If it's a highly conserved region and it changes dramatically, we're like, oh, seems bad. And just generally, like, we've sequenced, like, a buttload of genomes. Like, a lot. Like, when you consider that the Human Genome Project tied up in, what, 2001? Like, I've sequenced Mm. so many fucking genomes since then. Like, the problem with genomics, and I think, like, to a large extent, the problem that we're facing in biology as a whole isn't information. It's how to deal with the influx of information we're experiencing, with the improvements Mm. in computing powers and techniques. That's That's the big question for our age, isn't it? Too much information and not enough comprehension. And just, like, not enough people, really. Yeah. I'm thinking about, like, places I've worked, and, like, honestly, they could do with, like, 50% more genomics specialists. And all the time they don't have funding for it, but, like, realistically, like, that's how they should be dealing with the data they have. Mm. Well, this is the thing that I always end up thinking about when I think about science and how... I don't know, fucked up it is, is the economics behind it. Not necessarily the economic... I don't know, when people talk about economics of science, they talk about... What they mean is the economic activity, um, the positive economic growth that comes from scientific study, but there's not much talk about the economics of science itself, like how scientists are paid and funded, how research is funded, um, whether all the incentives are, are in the right place. And I don't know, whenever I think about science now and I think about the problems in it, it all comes down to it not having enough incentives, not having the right incentives in the right place, and just not flourishing because we, as a world, as a society, place so much value on money and profitability. Well, to a large extent, that's why, like, human genomics has done quite well right in the Mm. sense that like there's private genomics organizations out there there's you know ostensibly private ones that are open access and seem to do quite Mm. well that way um and it's medical Mm. and it's pretty easy anywhere except the states sorry i'm really bagging on the u.s today that's all right but like realistically they let an experiment happen where a guy just sewed two mice together and was like wonder what'll fucking happen like, so I just, I don't really have time for it. That's a real poor ethics oversight, homies. And just some real villain shit. Oh, yeah, so those are the OG experiments that mean that, like, old rich people in the US, like, inject themselves with younger people's blood. This is totally off topic, but are there studies um, that look into why rich people are so weird? I mean, probably. They probably don't phrase it like that. Rich people are really weird, though. They're probably, like, class and eccentricity. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so, like, basically anywhere except the States, there's a bunch of money put aside for medical research funding. And, like, full disclaimer, I'm someone who's benefited directly from that. But also I think it's a misunderstanding of what, like, the fundamentals of science should be. Like, obviously there should be medical research funding. That's really important. If fewer people died from cancer, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Let's defeat cancer the way... The meteor defeated the dinosaurs. Inspirational. (laughs) 
but like that fundamental biology that fundamental chemistry that fundamental physics research like is all really important not simply to like you know increase the profitability of whatever but like to increase the base of human knowledge and to like get us closer to that post-scarcity society we see in fucking star trek right well that's the thing is like when i think about the economics of science i inevitably arrive at a place where it's like well how do we remove the need for money in science because oh, useless you... shit that has fucking gold on it man <laughs> The what? Um, so many of my experiments require things that were like plated with gold. <laughs> yeah. So that's probably the first step is like cut out the gold. <laughs> <laughs> but like, do you need it though? Because yeah, gold is do. very good. You really need it. <laughs> for a l- yeah, it has really handy properties. I'm just reminded of this tweet by Swift on Security that's like, "Can people please stop putting gold in their food? We need it for our HDMI cables." So maybe we just need to stop eating gold. Yeah, true. <laughs> At rich people. <laughs> you can have gold-coloured fondant. It's basically the same. Yeah, I mean, like, humans are weird. I don't think we can specifically at rich people about that. I think they just have the money to, like, actualise their weirdness. I think if you gave anyone a lot of money and were like, do whatever with it, they'd just do some bizarre shit. I think you're absolutely right. Like, I'm begging on rich people now, but if I had that much money, I'd be doing some fucked up shit, I'm sure. <laughs> you'd be you'd be eating gold. Sure, why not? Poop it out. I mean, as an aside, I would love to know how you are so mentally lucid while being sick. Uh, I, like, slammed a limb sip at 8am and mm-hmm. then went for a walk and then had breakfast and then did this call. You're amazing. Inspirational. Also, like, I'm always angry about science in some way, <laughs> right? Like, I, I'm sad about it. I'm really sad about it. Because I really like science. Well, that's an understatement. I think science is fundamental to our progress as a society, um, to our entire species it's so important not only to progress us like technologically to make our lives better but also it's kind of like uh this sounds silly but it's kind of a way for humanity to pay tribute back to the nature that surrounds us by learning all about the intricacies and by understanding the world that we live in so to me science is not just something that's very practical and good for progress but there's something that feels incredibly important about understanding the world that we live in and it's something that's quite satisfying on an emotional level to be able to marvel at the world that we live in and all its strange intricacies and processes and just how it all works and the fact that right now science is so held back stifled by the fact that people need money to live yeah uh, and things require money and profitability to survive that's just extremely sad to me yeah Um, Something that's happened in Australia this year is that 
the Australian Research Council has had um, what some would call ministerial interference, where after grants were submitted, the minister in charge was like, they have to be like useful for the economy. Um, and it meant people heard about grants over a month after they were meant to, which is substantive when the month you're meant to hear it is October and you hear it in November and your grant runs out in December. Right. But also it means like people didn't pitch for that. <laughs> like a lot of a lot of science is the pitching, a lot of science becomes the grant writing and getting fellowships. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I mean like fundamentally there's a lot of reasons I fundamentally left academia. But like the first time that I thought about it, I was just like, what I love about this is the actual science. Yes, same. Yes. So why would I have a career where the further I get, the more like writing about my science yeah like yeah i don't want to write grants you don't want to spend your time being a salesman like we're not here to if i wanted to do that i would have been a farmer rep right like (laughs) (laughs) no that's exactly what what really put me off academia as well like in honors yeah i think i told you about this already my supervisor spent so much of his time writing grants and that was bizarre to me it's like aren't we supposed to be here doing science and then i had to understand that to do the science you have to write the grants so that someone yeah. will pay you to do the science yeah and like i would accept an element of responsibility to the broader population when you consider that most science is funded by taxpayer money like i think mm-hmm. as part of your science if it is funded by taxpayer money some of that should be general science communication about what you're doing like sure yeah absolutely i think i think there is an element of that responsibility but i don't think it is as much as it is right now you know like i don't think you should be having to spend most if not all of your time writing grants or like and constantly and constantly on one year contracts not knowing if you have a job the next year like i have a friend who currently works for the government and her big like shop she'd spent the last 13 years on one year contracts in one place so Mm -hmm. in one institution in one job every year she had to get a contract renewed just for another year Mm -hmm. and at the point where they were like okay so we're going to renew it for six months that was the point where she was like no i quit (laughs) yeah like that's that's not and like she moved to government and got like a permanent position and she was just kind of like what do you mean i don't have a contract and they were like well you your staff like you're not a contractor your staff something that i would really love to see is either the decoupling of economic incentives and money in general from social good investments such as science or even, like, um, things to mitigate climate change. Like, either the removal of the need for money or or the opposite end, which is, like, really heavily coupling it and saying this is a, an investment we're going to make and kind of go all in on that. Look, I think, I think there's space for both. Like, when you look at, like, medical research, like arguably what we're pitching is like fewer people die and people are healthier like there's Mm. never any question that we have to be like and this will help the economy 
But fundamentally, they do, right? Because, like, when people are less sick, they're in hospital less, they work more, they make more money. Hmm. I guess what I would just love to see is, like, the dethroning of economic health as the number one priority in every sense of life. That That is what I would like to see. Yeah, I think, like, there needs to be more space for, like, blue sky kind of research. Yes, yes. Just, like, having research that might like that will probably not work out we need more of that we need more like throwing spaghetti at a wall kind of yeah research and it needs to be done by people who aren't craig venter right yes that's a whole other can of worms yeah, yeah. well it's like when we have that kind of blue sky research done by individuals like it's much less likely that any good outcome of that will benefit you know people mm. right like um the example that always gets trotted out in Australia is, like, you know, Wi-Fi was invented by, like, some of this blue sky research that was done at CSIRO. But the reason that benefited everyone is because that's a government-funded agency, right? Like, that's in the public yes. domain. Mm-hmm. If fucking Elon Musk had discovered Wi-Fi, you can guarantee yourself that we'd be paying, like, through the nose to use Wi-Fi and not wired internet. Well, you could guarantee also that it won't be as prevalent and we might not even, not even be using it at all because Ooh. it's expensive. The, the whole reason why these technologies are so ubiquitous, much like why internet is so ubiquitous, is because it's free and open and the protocols are not patented, not privatized, and so it spreads. The polio vaccine is one of those very good examples where, like, the guy who invented it had the opportunity to patent it, and he was like, "No, mm, yeah, it's a it's a vaccine for polio. <laughs> like, <laughs> why would I patent that?" <laughs> good on you, guy. Yeah, I mean, look, having having said that, I'm also I'm I'm okay with like patents existing. Like, even even in the yeah. medical space, like I think a lot yeah, of the totally. time that can be a good thing and that can mm. support innovation. Um, but I think that does need to be coupled with, like, a public healthcare system, essentially. Like, a government who Mm. says, like, yeah, okay, like, we'll pay for this, and if you charge too much for it, we'll just take it because we can. Yeah. There's, like, a thing in medical health law where if a company is, like, charging heaps for something that the government sees as being, like, a necessary public good, they can just, like, break the patent and be like, whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, but, like, essentially that only works when you have a public healthcare system whereas if your healthcare system is entirely privatized like people die because they can't pay for heart transplants we're looking at you america (laughs) it's a really bad episode for ragging on the u.s (laughs) (laughs) well they're not done so i mean they need to step up the game and also they'll be fine (laughs) we can we can rag on them every episode and they will the privatized medical system will keep going, so, you know. Yeah, I feel like the states has bigger problems than us, like, yeah. ragging on them. Yeah, I really, I really wouldn't know. Because have we talked um, in a previous episode about how ridiculous it is that scientists, like, they don't get paid, sorry, is what I'm trying to say. They don't get paid by journals for their work. Have we covered that in an episode um, yet? I don't think so. It's fucked, though. Yeah, yeah. So that's like another just weird economics of science thing that happens is that in any normal publication, the publication will pay the authors for their content, for their work, but not in science. In, in science, 
the journals do not pay for the work that they publish. And in fact, in some cases, in some dodgier journals, the scientists will have to pay the journal to get their work published. Um, so it's like... Yeah, there are a couple of open access journals that will charge scientists who come from like wealthy universities um, mm. so that they can pay scientists from like you know African or South yeah. American institutions. I'm a big fan of that, but it's still just like it's fucked. Like it's still really weird because most science is publicly funded. So what's happening is that there's public money going into the funding of the research. And then the research that comes out of that is published then in a private journal that has subscribers, paying subscribers. And what are these journals doing? Like, they're, they're turning public money into private money with little work in between. And, like, that just baffles me, having also worked in normal publications <laughs> where it's completely the other way around. Like, you pay your authors for their work. Yeah. Um, it has resulted in, you know, Sci-Hub, which is fantastic. Yes. And things like, for most journal articles, if you reach out to the corresponding author, they will just send the article to yes. you. Yes. Yeah. Because they're just like, we don't like the fact that there's paywalls. It's not like we're getting paid. Yeah. And what do you think, like, you know, how much a nature, a full nature subscription is? When you think, like, fuck, there's, like, a single paper in a lot of these close-access journals is $32. They are making so much bank. Mm-hmm. And that's not really going back into the community. It is not. It is just going straight into people's pockets. So you have been listening to Things of Interest. In this episode, we have talked a lot about how science is broken, single tier, and all the different ways that it's broken. We've talked about the recent advent of a scientist editing the germline of some babies. I have been, again, amazed by the entire field of biology and how mind-blowingly complex and mysterious it is and just how little we know. Science is awesome. Science is cool. It's very broken. And if you're listening to this and you're a scientist, kudos to you positive vibes to you as always we're on social media you can get us on twitter we're at casting interest on facebook with things of interest and you can email us casting interest at gmail.com yes um, please, please do leave us a review on apple Podcasts or your podcast listening device um <laughs> and tell a friend like that's how people find out about us we're not always a science podcast if that's not your jab we just like talking about stuff but we are both scientists, so it comes up sometimes. And if you want us to cover something that you're interested in, um, if you want us to chat about something that you're interested in, please send us a message. Like, let us know. Tell us about really interesting things that you found and that you want to hear about. I've been Sophia Friend. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting. <laughs> <laughs>